get started, uh, just a housekeeping issue. This is Dr. Lloyd's last week, and I personally, again, want to thank him. He put this series together in uh, memory of Jim, uh, and I think it's been a great, a great series. And last week was outstanding, and again, my thanks to him. And if you'd like to show your thanks, I did put a basket out. Again, the church gives us a small stipend for this class, but if you'd like to give a thank you offering, I promise that'll get to Dr. Lloyd. Next week is Dr. Ham. We'll start a four-week study on Job. Let's open in prayer. Father God, your word is your message to us. It builds our faith. This week I was reminded of the message that we are to come to you as children. I called to my granddaughter to come sit on my lap, and I got the often no. And I employed several times for her to come, and she didn't. But then finally, she grabbed her books and came with her arms open and crawled on my lap. And you call us to come to you as children. And what joy I felt as she sat on my lap and how you must feel every time one of us come to you as children and sit on your lap. We hear the call. And I watched her face as she picked out the animals in the book and gained knowledge and understanding. And I pray for that same open-mindedness for us today we open our minds to the word you would have us here through our brother. Bless Keith as he speaks. Open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're, we're on. We're live. How's everyone doing today? Obviously, the beginning of this, uh, this series and the end are mirrored in the fact that I've managed to get a cold at the beginning and the end. <coughs> so, <coughs> gosh, I don't want that going over the microphone. There's uh, one of the things that's happening politically that I don't. I don't want to get into the politics of the day too much, but the one thing that's important thing that's happening is the replacement of a judge, right, on the Supreme Court. And one of the things that I think most people look for, um, and we'll see if this if it works, if this happens, is someone who uh, is just a good judge that's uh, maybe conservative, maybe more liberal, but for the most part, nobody has any complaint because that's the person that Democrats and Republicans will get together and support. Um, so even though uh, presidents in the past have uh, promoted people who lean more their way, they still try to find someone they, they think has a good reputation, right? Hopefully. Um, something that no one can argue with. At least that's been the tradition. And... Uh, what I've been finding in this study of James is he's called James the Just. And he's known as the brother of Jesus. Um, now I know that the, the Roman Catholic Church argues with this and says that Mary was perpetually a virgin and uh, that these were his cousins. But it says it's his brothers. And so I just kind of go with that. But if you want to insert cousin when I say brother, it's sorry with me. Um, <coughs> 
And what they cite is that there is a tradition of saying that, that people in your whole family, your extended family, are brothers. I understand that. But there's a lot of evidence to say that the early church definitely believed that this was the brother of Jesus. And they called him James the Just for a reason. And it was just this. He was fair. And no one had any problem with him. He somehow found that space between the Jewish traditionalists and the new faith. He found that space. He found that place to walk where he could reach both. So we'll see that even though he was martyred, um, it, it was almost just, it was very stupid and, and political, and it, it didn't have anything to do with his character. And people on all sides argued that this should never have happened, that James should never have been killed, because he was trying to find a space for Christianity within Judaism. He didn't believe that it was a separate religion. He believed that, um, understood rightly, both sides could live together. So, I'd say that's an admirable quality even today. If someone is just enough that they're respected by their enemies and they're respected by their friends and they're respected by their supporters all the way across. That's not easy to do, but apparently that's the kind of person he was. Now, the New Testament tells us that, that James did not, was not a follower of Jesus during his ministry. There is an alternate theory that says he is one of the disciples uh, listed as a different name, but that you have to buy the cousin theory for that to work. Uh, he wasn't a follower of Jesus during his ministry, but he was at the ascension. And in fact, uh, the accounts agree that James was the first person that saw Jesus ascended. Now, of course, that doesn't jive exactly with the, with the New Testament accounts where uh, Mary and some of the others encounter him, but probably the first man, at least. Sources beyond the New Testament confirm his leadership, the first historical mention of Jesus' Nazareth outside the New Testament. Are you ready for this? Jesus is not mentioned in the history books. It's not mentioned in the annals of the Romans at all. The first time he's mentioned is by a Jewish uh, historian named Josephus, and we've looked at him all the way through all my different presentations. And he mentions that uh, James was martyred and that he was the brother of Jesus whom they call the Christ. So this is the first mention. But I think what's forgotten here is that's pretty amazing that the first mention of the historical Jesus is not actually about Jesus. It's about whom? His brother. The overwhelming consensus is that the traditions contained within the epistle of James can confidently be traced to James the just. So we still have, I don't think they're probably exactly uh, his words. A lot of scholars believe that these, this was probably a follower of James who wrote in James' name, which was not unusual at the time. But definitely we can rely that this is things, these are things that James said in the book of James. And I don't know if you've read it lately, it's, it's, a, it's like the Gospel of Mark. It's just so straightforward, very plain language. Um, James and his epistle then are 
the most substantial link we have to the historical Jesus. You can't get much more substantial than his brother. Okay, the New Testament describes James, Joseph, Joseph, uh, Judas, Judah as the brothers of Jesus. Adelphoi, his brothers. Also mentioned but not named are sisters of Jesus. I'm surprised nobody's written some sort of historical fiction on the sisters of Jesus. I mean, that's just waiting to happen, isn't it? <laughs> what would it be like to grow up with Jesus? It's kind of mind-numbing. And it's interesting that, uh, that Mary and James and all the family thought Jesus had lost his mind when he started out in his ministry. They, they tell him that, come back home, you're embarrassing us kind of thing. <laughs> so it's kind of a typical family in that way. We grew up with you. Um, what are you doing? Okay, so just a reminder what we're doing here, deep study of historical context to mentally recreate the world we're focusing on, uh, using outside verifi verification like Josephus, Roman records, etc. We look at a number of sources. If it's in all four Gospels, it's, m it's more evidenced for historians. If it doesn't fit with tradition, it's more uh, evidenced for historians. And then whatever's earliest usually counts as the most accurate. Now, it says there that that would be Mark Q, which is the source that Matthew and Luke and Mark all drew from that we've lost. And then Paul's letters. It says Paul's letters, but as we're going to see, Paul had a completely different theology than James. All right. So, what we've been doing is looking at Jesus of Nazareth, about him forbidding others to call him Messiah or King, calling himself the Son of Man, and then last week the function of his miracles, which was, of course, to point to those things. This week I want to look at how that's all related to the early church leadership is focused in James, his brother. So the overall goal, like I said before, what can we learn about the historical Jesus from the period history and his use of rhetoric, and how can we enhance our understanding of Jesus in the early church? All right, so first of all, we need to look at the evidence that James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now, I'm drawing on uh, some different writers this time, even though uh, I've been using this book, Zealot, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, as a, as a starting point. I don't refer to it much this week because I really wanted to look at the evidence for what he says. So I looked elsewhere. This is by David Holm, uh, talking about James, the brother of Jesus, religion and spirituality. All right, in the early days of the church, about 44 CE, King Herod Agrippa killed the apostle James, the son of Je Zebedee. In fact, the first disciple killed is James, the son of Zebedee. So, obviously, he's out of the history. He's out of the mix. And this is early. This is only chapter 12 of Acts, which goes on to 20-something chapters. Thus, it must be another James to whom Luke refers to in verse 17 of the same chapter. See, what's confusing is there are several Jameses in the New Testament. It's a very common word. It's actually a Greek form of Jacob, Yahoo, or Yahoo. Though as many as seven different people by the name 
have been identified in the New Testament, it's James, the brother of Jesus, Galatians 1.19 is most likely. All right, so, Paul writes in Galatians, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation of Jesus Christ. And he talks about that um, he, he got the gospel totally by revelation and didn't go to Jerusalem at all. Now, he's kind of proud of the fact that he didn't get to know the people who knew the historical Jesus which in some senses is kind of odd, but it's very telling in the sense that Pauline Christianity kind of becomes the form of Christianity later. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem. But when he went to Jerusalem, he said, I got, I got to get acquainted with Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And it's interesting because James calls Jesus Lord in his letter. It doesn't use Messiah or King, but the word Lord. James, the leader of the early church and author of the book of James. Okay, so Jesus' brothers were present with the apostles in Jerusalem as the church began after Jesus' departure. The same James appears in Acts as the leader of the church at Jerusalem. So it's reasonable to suggest that he's the author of the New Testament by the name. Okay, and there's a little note there saying that some believe, following the cousin theory, that he is James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the actual disciples. I think some of the scriptures kind of contradict that, but it's a worthy theory, I think. All right, then little things that you don't notice when you're reading too fast. When Jesus is ascended, uh, they see him go up, and he's, uh, why do you stand here? And then uh, uh, two men in, in dressed in white, and I think I always, I've talked before about angels in, in the New and Old Testament never look like angels. They're just standing there. There's people. And they're just standing there. So it's disconcerting. That's why they always say, don't be afraid. Because <laughs> if we were standing here, and all of a sudden there's somebody just standing there, I think we'd be a little shook up. So they're just standing there. So what are you looking up at the sky for? He'll come back the same way you've seen him go to heaven. So the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, a different James, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. So basically the 12 are now 11. And they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary and his brothers. So he was there. Well, that kind of makes sense. He may not have been convinced by Jesus in his, in his time on earth, but when he saw him after the resurrection, something happened. According to Paul, then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All right, according to Josephus, as I said before, he was put to death by stoning the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, whose name was James. <clears throat> Interesting, though, we saw last week, what did they say about Jesus when he first spoke? He spoke with what? With authority, not as one of the scribes, not as somebody who's repeating things. It's one who's speaking from, him, from a, a power within. As a leader in Jerusalem, James spoke with authority to end the internal church controversy over the circumcision of Gentile believers. 
So we'll look at that in detail in a second. And this would be the second. All right, basically, Paul and Barnabas are out converting people, and they get in an argument with the Jews, saying these people need to obey the customs and the laws of Judaism because they understood Christianity as a Jewish religion, as a part of Judaism. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to decide this question. This is considered the first council of the church. First time they had to debate a theological matter. After much discussion, who got up? Peter. Right? Brothers, you know, some time ago, God made a choice among the Gentiles might hear from the lips of the message of the gospel. Believe, as we saw in the book of Acts, he was told to go talk to um, a Gentile. And at the very last line, he says, no, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Okay, but who stands up after Peter? I don't know about you, but in meetings, usually when I'm the chair of a meeting, I listen to everybody. I don't talk. You know, I introduce the topic, set up the agenda, but then it's time I listen, right? What does everybody think? And I don't say anything. Because I see my job as chair to kind of find that space, right? Where I could pull everybody together and make a decision. But I can't make a decision if I don't know what everybody thinks. And I'm not going to learn what everybody thinks if I put them on the spot or, you know, diminish what they're trying to say. Um, so it's interesting that he's, it says, when they finished. Yes? So Peter's done. Paul and, and Barnabas have talked but they're not the ones that are going to make the decision. Who makes the decision? James. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God has first intervened to choose a people from his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. In its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So first of all, he paraphrases a scriptural passage to show that he understands the issue and that he thinks that God has said that this is the way it's supposed to be. It is my judgment, therefore. It's interesting, who is the judge of this? The whole meeting. It's James. He speaks with authority that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That seems to be the whole plot of James's life. Don't make it difficult for people to come to God. Simple enough. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols. And you have to think, okay, write to them. He means send out a letter with Paul and Barnabas saying that, that we're in agreement here. Yes, this is what we agree on. And they're going to disseminate it by other means as well. So he says, abstain from food polluted by idols. And if you know Paul's work, you know he talks about that, that you can't do that. From sexual immorality, he also talks about that. And the meat of strangled animals from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. It's like we have to show some respect for the law. People know the law. It is... It is the center of Jewish faith. 
We have to show respect for it. It might have to be reinterpreted. Remember I talked about, they believe that scripture should be reinterpreted for the times. That's exactly what he's trying to do. And he's trying to keep Christianity, I think, a Hebrew combination religion. So he's the last one to speak, and he's the one that solidifies the response. Nobody argues with James. He gets done, and that's that. They write the letter. Okay, some have raised the question, was he an apostle? Because you saw that Paul said earlier, I didn't see anyone but James and the other apostles. Um, There's some question exactly what an apostle is. Paul seems to take it. In fact, he names uh, people, other people as apostles that were not one of the 12. So there's kind of a question exactly who an apostle was. It means an emissary, uh, a missionary, basically. Um, So he says that other people translate it a little bit different and say, other than the apostles, I saw no one except James, the Lord's brother. To me, that's kind of a moot point. Yes, he's obviously the leader of the church. And I don't think he's so bent out of shape himself about whether he's an apostle or not. That just doesn't sound very Jamesian. All right, so what more can we know of James and his earlier life from the gospel accounts? Mark and Matthew indicate he was one of several children born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus' birth. Mark records, remember Mark's the earliest gospel, so we're, we're getting closer to the historical Jesus. Mark records an incident in Jesus' ministry where his fellow townsmen derided him as merely a local. Man, this happens all over the place, doesn't it? Where do you get the least respect? In your house, in your home, right? (laughs) They grew up with you. They know you. So the hometown is kind of like, he's one of us. He grew up with us. All right, so Mark records an incident. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and, and or Yimes, it would be, they, didn't, they pronounced it as a Y, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Huh. It is sometimes kind of hard. I'm... Um, like I've talked to you before, I'm supposed to give this TED Talk. One of the things I mentioned is it's something that my daughter said to me. And I think any parent knows that there are times that a child could speak to you and you're like, wow, <laughs> that hurt. Uh, that, was, <laughs> that was dead on. But it's harder to listen sometimes, you know, to the wisdom of your children or the people that you grow up with, right? They, we don't always see them as, um, especially brothers and sisters, I know several people in, in large families, and nobody listens to any of the brothers and sisters. So the town has a similar attitude. Like, he grew up here. We know this boy. What's he doing? James and the rest of the family were opposed to Jesus' ministry and teaching. At one point, they actually thought him mad. John tells us not even his brothers believed in him. Now, even Aslan says he thinks that's a bit of an overstatement, um, that he wouldn't take so much out of those passages, and he sees them more contextually. They're worried about him. Not so much that he's wrong, but they're worried. Because we know, we've looked. He's headed to get killed, and they know it. And I think any of us want to protect our family members. And I, I think they're more motivated by that. Like, uh, you sure you want to do this? 
uh, I don't think they're necessarily motivated by disbelief, although I don't think um, James totally gets it at this point. Who would? Yeah. Perhaps, because as we know from the earlier accounts too, they usually killed like as many as they could, so they might kill Jesus and his brothers for having anything to do with it, with the insurrection. <coughs> and this is the actual passage from Mark 3. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd was gathered, so he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, that makes sense. You're not even able to eat. <laughs> They went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Okay. The opening of the book of Acts says James has become one of the disciples. Even though he's Jesus' brother, he did not take up the vacancy called by Judas' death. This is another thing people wonder about. Well, why wasn't he elected uh, the other disciple? And then we have a confirmation that he wasn't really a part of the ministry because they chose another man, one of the men who... Uh, had accompanied them during the time that the Lord Jesus went in among them. So they didn't choose him because he had not been a disciple all along. They chose someone who'd been a part of Jesus' ministry. (coughs) But he became leader of the church, demonstrated the fact that Paul met with him and the apostle Peter, also called Cephas, when he first went to Jerusalem after his conversion, which we already looked at. He met James on another occasion when he brought famine relief to Jerusalem, from the churches outside Judea, and we'll look at that as well. Acts 21 says, when we arrived at Jerusalem, meaning the writer of Acts, which we take as as Luke, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. So you can just tell by somebody's activities, who does he go to see? Yeah, it's always Peter and James. This time, James first. And all the other elders were present. So, um, he's at least an elder. Acts 21, James and the leader of the church compelled Paul to show respect for the law. All right, so what has basically happened is everyone's running around saying that uh, Paul is not a true Jew, and he's, he's totally thrown out the law. He's crazy. He's preaching to Gentiles. And this is upsetting in both ways. It's upsetting to the Jewish people because he seems to be saying throw out the law. And it's upsetting to the Hebrew Christians saying, well, you can't just throw it out. We have to, we have to keep this together. And <clears throat> so basically they say, why don't you prove that you're a good Jew? Basically do something ritualistic. And so they said, there are four men with us who've made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Now, Aslan makes a big deal out of this, that basically James and the others are saying, Paul, you're out of line. You've pushed too far. You're pushing the gospel too far. And that basically... It's were to remain a part of Judaism and that it is, a, it is fundamentally attached to the traditions of the Jews. <coughs> so they have him do this. Now we don't know exactly, I mean, Paul later says that he did it gladly. <coughs> uh, 
to, to prove this point, that he wasn't really saying what he seemed to be saying. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself with them, and he went to the temple to get notice of the date when the days of purification went in. Okay, so James is powerful enough to even say that to Paul. You need to show that you haven't gone that, you're not that far out of line. And also, it's an act of obedience to the Jerusalem church. All right, so we have some extra biblical references. Although we don't have extra biblical references to Jesus, we do have them to James. Hegesippus, in the second century, uh, wrote a history of the early Christian church. He wrote, following James' death, the church shows another of Jesus' blood relatives, his cousin Simon or Simeon, to be the leader. Remember, he was in the list, so another of Jesus' brothers became the leader of the Jerusalem church. According to Eusebius, Clement of Alexandria says that Peter and John chose James for his office. So they purposely chose James to be the leader of the church. In the 5th century, Jerome said that uh, James ruled the church of Jerusalem for 30 years, that is until the 7th year of Nero. And Eusebius said that James the Just was the first bishop of Jerusalem. And then, as I said before, this is the first historical mention of Christianity at all in a historian's account. And now Caesar, upon hearing of the death of Festus, sent Albinus into Judea as procurator. We'll see that some trouble comes from that. But the king deprived Joseph of the high priesthood and bestowed the succession to that dignity on the son of Ananus. And we remember Ananus from the Gospel accounts, who was also himself called Ananus. Now the report goes, that's always confusing, they didn't have like junior. Sometimes they would say the lesser or the younger or something like that. This one, nope, just same name. Proved most fortunate man for he had five sons who had all performed the office of high priest to God and himself enjoyed that dignity a long time formally, which had never happened to any of our other high priests. Usually it's not a hereditary kind of thing. But this younger Ananus, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. Son stories never go well, do they? Seems like when they talk about like the good guy and then the son, what happened to the son? He was also of the sect of the Sadducees, who were very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the, of the Jews, as we have already observed. Remember, the Sadducees are more about keeping the absolute letter of the law, so not big fans of the Christian movement. When therefore Ananus was of this disposition, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus was dead, Albanius was now upon the road, so he assembled the Sanhedrin and judges and brought before him whom? The brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James. And some others for uh, some of his companions, and some others, some of his companions, when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So he was accusing them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus accused the powers that be of, of being abusers of power. James is following that same tradition. He's gotten himself in trouble. But as for those who seemed the most equitable of the citizens, and as such were most uneasy with the breach of the laws, they disliked what was being done. Remember I said he had this great reputation. He was respected by his enemies as well as the followers. They said, no, don't do this. 
They also sent to King Agrippa, desiring him, and Agrippa is the one who uh, officiated the trial of Jesus, desiring him to send Ananus that he should act no more, for what he had already done was not to be justified. In other words, the, the death of James. And we don't have to get through all of that, but it said King Agrippa took the high priesthood from him. Some people say that this began, uh, that at this moment began a kind of zealot movement where zealotry became not just being zealous for God, but it became a movement, a political movement, which led to the rebellion against the Romans, which happens almost immediately after this, I mean, a few years after. So some people say that, that it was this just absolute horrifying abuse of power, the killing of James, that led to this rebellion, it, it, along with some other factors. All right, Hegesippus <coughs> says, James the Lord brother succeeds to the government of the church in conjunction with the apostles. He has been universally called the just from the days of the Lord down to the present time. And, okay, some people take this as being kind of an exaggeration, Aslan included, but this is the way he described it. This one was holy from his mother's womb. He drank no wine or other intoxicating glitter, nor did he eat flesh. No razor came to, on his head. That doesn't really fit that picture we have up there. He'd be more like dreadlocked. He did not anoint himself with oil nor make use of the bath. Aslan said, I don't think a guy that never took a bath would be a leader of the church. But <coughs> we get the idea. He, he lived a solid aesthetic life. Uh, he was wont to go to the temple and used to be found kneeling on his knees. I love redundancy. What else would you kneel on? Begging forgiveness for the people so that the skin of his knees became horny like that of a camel's a reason of his constantly bending his knee in adoration to God and begging his forgiveness. He was called James the Just, and Oblius was signifies in Greek, defense of the people. Yeah, you remember everything I talked about Jesus of Nazareth? What was he all about? The oppressed, right? The poor. The people who are neglected by society. And we see James is definitely picked up on that mantle. Speak to authority, challenge authority, defend the poor. And he became Jen, James the Just. All right, Hegesippus' account is even more interesting because he gives an account of what James traditionally said. So here's how it all went down. How did James get in so much trouble? Some persons belonging to the seven sects, I don't have time to list them all, but the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, okay, so different sects of Judaism, um, which found before, which he described before, and we wouldn't know about some of those sects except for Josephus writes about them. What is the door of Jesus? Interesting question. It's a metaphor, isn't it? What is the door of Jesus? And he replied, Jesus is the Savior. In consequences of this answer, some believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, him being Savior doesn't mean he's the Christ, that he is God on earth, the Greek version, but being Savior just like Jesus in his use of rhetoric, he uses a different word, right? He switches the conversation. Because if I say he's the Messiah, or if I say he's the king, that's all misleading. He's the Savior. <clears throat> so they're like, okay, but are you saying that he's the Messiah? <laughs> they're still confused. And it's the same debate that Jesus was caught up in, right? Where they say, are you the Messiah? And he's like, that's who you say I am. Because you have a different definition of it than I do. 
James answers very similarly. That's why I think, uh, that's what kind of verifies this to me is ringing true. But the sects before mentioned did not believe, either in a resurrection or in the coming of one to requite every man according to his works. But those who did believe, believed because of James. So when many of the ruling class believed, there was a commotion among the Jews and the scribes and the Pharisees. A little more, and we shall have all the people looking for Jesus as the Christ. So it wasn't disturbing that Jesus did what he did or lived like he lived like we talked about last week. It was disturbing whether or not he was truly the Messiah. And James avoided that answer by saying, I don't think you understand what Messiah is. He was the Savior. He focuses on a different word. And then it gets even better. They came therefore in a body to James. We entreat you, restrain the people, for they've gone astray in their opinions about Jesus as if he were the Christ. We entreat you to persuade all who have come hither for the day of Passover concerning Jesus. For we all listen. How many of us? He found that space. Respected by all. We all listen to your, pres- your persuasion. Since we as well as all the people bear the testimony that, that you are just and show no partiality. Therefore, persuade the people not to entertain erroneous Companions concerning Jesus. For all the people, and we also listen to your persuasion. Twice they said that. Take your stand upon the summit of the temple. That doesn't mean on top of the temple. It means, you know, on the, on the rise in front of it. That from that elevated spot, you may clearly be seen. The words be plainly audible. And in order to attend the Passover, all the tithes have been congregated there. And some of the Gentiles also. All right. So they're saying, okay, you believe he's the Savior. True, we can go with that, but there's this question as to whether he's the Messiah. They fully believe that he's going to stand up and say he's not the Messiah. And they think that's going to solve the problem. And then there isn't going to be this hostility between Christians and Jews. But look at what he says. It's kind of amazing if you've been here every week. <laughs> The aforesaid scribes and Pharisees accordingly said James on the summit of the temple and cried aloud to him, O just one, this is your opportunity. It reminds me a little bit, you ever seen that, uh, what's the name of that movie? Where he's like Joe Public or whatever and, I mean, they usually show it around Christmas time. No, it's not that one. Um, Wait, no, I can't even think of the guy's name. I, I hate when that happens. Anyway, he, he's called like Joe Smith. Meet Joe Smith. Meet John Smith, right? Meet John Smith. And it's about how um, they pick this guy who's down and out and they, they, they elevate him and make him kind of the symbol of the American drawn, downtrodden person. And he gets caught up in this thing. And so he's finally supposed to give a speech about that supports the powers that be. And this is exactly what happens. He gets up and gives a different speech. <laughs> I wish I could remember the name of that movie. It's a, it's a, no, it's not that one either. <laughs> All right, who is that guy? It's Barbara Stanwyck. I can remember her name. Gary Cooper. He plays the everyman. And he's basically set up to speak. But he's really like this. He's very much a just 
person, but he's caught up in this kind of lie. It's a different story, but it reminds me of that. They expect one thing, and this is what they got. But look what he says. Why are you asking me concerning Jesus, what? The Son of Man. What a thing to say. You remember when Stephen was stoned? He said, who did, who did he see? I see Jesus of Nazareth. I see the Son of Man. Yes? So we see very early in the church, this is how Jesus was referred to. And here, just like on the trial, James says exactly the same thing. Why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and shall come in the clouds of heaven. Remember when the high priest asked Jesus who he is? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And then he kept going. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Almighty One coming from the clouds of heaven. James quotes him almost exactly. Yes? So everything we learned about Jesus and his rhetoric and the fact that he didn't want to answer the question because they didn't understand their own way of looking at it. Again, he does the same thing. Instead of saying whether or not he's the Messiah, he says, son of man. But just like with Jesus, they got it. So James' response, wait, where'd it go? Darn it. Anyway, it exactly mirrors what Jesus said. Okay, so what follows is they begin to stone James and then some goofball decides to strike him and cut off his head. And while they were stoning him to death, one of the priests, the sons of Rechab, Rechab, the son of Rechabim, Rechab, son of Rechabim, who testimony is born by Jeremiah, the prophet began to cry out loud, cease, what do you do? This man is praying for us. There are people in the crowd. Don't do this. But one among them, one of his fullers, took out a staff from which he was, one of the fullers, took the staff which he was accustomed to wring out garments, he died, and hurled it at the head of the just man, and apparently cut it off. And so he suffered martyrdom, and they buried him on the spot. And a pillar is erected, and memory still remains, close by the temple, and shortly after Vespasian besieged Judea, taking them captive. So you can see from the very earliest accounts, they thought this had something to do with the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, so let's look at the book of James. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. <clears throat> A whole lot of different passages in from the prophets and from Deuteronomy and some other places the, uh, the idea of the Messiah was based on random verses he's going to be king right well and then the word is used in, in really expansive generous ways even in the Old Testament where Isaiah calls uh, the Assyrian king uh, a Messiah because he's, he's, he does something good for the Jewish people. So it's not outlandish to say that he's a king, a physical king. He's in the line of David is one thing they agreed on, and that he would be a king and that he would save the people of Israel. He would restore the 12 tribes, restore the temple, 
that's what the Messiah was supposed to do. But it's all over the place, and not everybody agreed on everything. And some people didn't even believe that in this idea of Messiah. They thought there was just pie in the sky. Like somebody's not going to save us. But they also historically in the 130s had Judas Maccabeus who actually did rise up as a Messiah and took over and won against the Greeks. And they ruled until the Romans came. Actually until Herod Agrippa wiped out, Herod the Great wiped out what was left of them. But they ruled for quite a while. So there was good reason to believe that it would be a physical king. It had happened once before. And they try again later. But it, it it completely fails, and the Romans wiped them out. And we're going to get to that in a second. <coughs> so Paul doesn't narrate a single, this is according to Aslan, Paul doesn't narrate a single event from Jesus' life, nor does he directly quote Jesus' words, except the, ex- the exception of the Eucharistic formula. So while Paul's letters never mention a single parable or directly quote Jesus, except in terms of the Lord's Supper and a few other mentions, James' epistle mirrors and paraphrases the core of Jesus' teaching. That described in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and Luke's Sermon on the Plain. The familiar uh, Beatitudes, etc. Mostly the Beatitudes. Aslan goes so far as to say as Paul shows no interest, uh, says non, but no interest at all in the historical Jesus. That kind of makes sense because Paul meets Jesus in ascended form and he's concerned with this new way of looking at theology but he didn't actually know the person. So you can look at his earlier arguments as saying that these people knew Jesus, but he's trying to say, I do too. So he's not trying to give them too much authority because the early church thought, unless you were there, you're not an apostle. You know, you're not. And, and Paul gets into a lot of arguments about that. I wasn't there. James was. All right, so let's just look at some passages quickly. Jesus says in Luke 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What does James say? Our brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. And he gives this example. It's interesting. He likes to use uh, like vivid examples, analogies. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. It's very much like the parable, Right? where the last or first and the first or last. Somebody comes in, sits in the space, and then makes them <laughs> go to the lowest spot. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, I sit on the floor beneath my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? This is kingdom talk we were talking about last week. And to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. It is, not the rich who are, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Wow. I don't think things have changed a whole lot. Mark 10.25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone rich to enter the kingdom of God. And Luke. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. What do you who are well fed now? You will go hungry. And what do you laugh now? You will mourn and weep. Jesus says that. What does James say? Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail. <laughs> He's exactly paraphrasing Jesus. 
the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth is rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Boy, anybody that dares to speak like that always gets in trouble, don't they? I'm speaking for the poor. Oh, you must be a socialist. You're nuts. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Interesting. He says, Jesus wasn't opposing you. Matthew 5, 34. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So there was a tradition in Judaism that if you really meant something, you'd swear an oath. We still do that, right? You have to do that in the courtroom. And basically, Jesus is saying, if you have to swear an oath, then half the time you're lying. Just don't ever speak untruth. Nobody's going to ask you for an oath, are they? This time, I'm not lying. <laughs> All right, don't swear oaths. Just speak the truth. Yes, <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I'm not... I don't want to go too far, but, you know, people who have to say all the time, believe me. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, good question. James, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear. Not by earth or by anything else. You need to say a simple yes or no. Keep your word. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And there's the rest of the parable. Rain came down, etc. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I like James. It gets to the point. Right? Just do it. I can't help but think of Yoda. What is it? There is no try. Just do. Not to compare James to Yoda, but... <laughs> in Matthew therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands see this is a view of the law that we don't often think about that Jesus himself says and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven so he's talking about the kingdom of heaven this place that he's living this alternate way of looking at life in the world but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven what does James say for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I think we've all had that experience. Have you had the reverse experience where you look in the mirror and like, holy smokes. <laughs> this is what I look like. <laughs> I think he's talking about the second part of that. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, and in a sense he's saying it's like a mirror. It reflects back who you really are, right? And continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. Are we getting the point? James is summarizing fundamental teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Let's compare a little bit to what Paul says. I know these are small, but you have it in front of you. 
know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. James takes a slightly different uh, version. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Works. What can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed. Oh, man, people do this all the time. Do you notice that? I have a cold now, and they'd be like, well, stay warm. (laughs) Okay, I get it. I get the sentiment, and and thank you for that. But they didn't do anything to help me. You know what I'm saying? If they gave me some medicine or made me lie down, put a blanket over me, that would be more like what he's thinking. Stay warm. <laughs> oh, man, now I'm thinking about those people that stand and beg on the corner. <coughs> I, uh, was, I think I might have shared this story before, but I was talking to my students uh, one time about that we ought to look out for each other, and I was teaching at a school that was in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. And, I mean, we weren't doing anything that had to do with the gospel or anything else. I was just saying that I just think, as human beings, you know, we, we need to look out for each other. And, and I, you know, so if somebody asks you for money in the street, just give it to them. Don't make judgments on them or whatever. And usually I try to do that. But uh, I'm walking down, I knew, you know, you know, when you say something like that, there's going to be a test. <laughs> and, it, and I think I've pretty much failed the test, but so I'm walking along, and there's this guy. He's just stumbling drunk right next to me. And it couldn't be but about 10 in the morning or something. He's wearing a long coat, and he looks awful, and he smells worse. And he's just like, wearing this long tweed overcoat that I guess he got from Goodwill or something. I'm walking by him, and what does he do? When I'm right next to him, he falls flat on his face. Just didn't even put his hands out. You know, you know you've been drinking when that happens. Just bam. So I pull him up, and there's blood all over his face and everything else. And then he's like, yeah, stuff is coming out of his nose. and Not blood. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it's all over me. <laughs> it, it's everywhere. It's like a cobweb in a bad movie. And I'm like, ah! So I did clean him up. I tried to get him on his feet, but man, I walked away. I thought, you kind of, pa- you didn't pass the test. And I thought, well, there's my limit. I hit it. It's like, it was okay till he got stuff all over me. <laughs> Looking back, I'm like, really? You weren't very far from a shelter. Why didn't you just take him over there? The heck? I still feel kind of bad about that. But uh, James is talking about that. If you don't do anything then, you know, what, what the heck does that mean that you believe? Paul says, So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. But then James says, well, let's look at that story again. There are a lot of people who say that James and Paul just were colliding, and that the story of Acts shows that, that collision, that James wanted to keep it keep the traditions associated with Judaism and that he, he didn't want this radical departure or this complete redefinition of the gospel. Um, 
So if you look at James, you foolish person. Now, Aslan thinks he's talking to Paul directly there. I, I don't know if I buy that, but that's what he says. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Okay, so he said the proof of his faith was not just that he had faith. It was when, and like me in the street, the proof of what I was saying was more what I did in the street than it was what I said in the classroom, wasn't it? And I don't think I fared too well. You see that this, his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures fulfilled it said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he, called, he was called God's friend. So he says, basically, the belief was shown in the action, and that's how we know he believed. Not just that he believed. James also says in another place, the demons believe. It's the actions. So I do think they're arguing about a point of view. Are we saved by faith alone? And James makes a logical point like, well, if I say I believe, but I don't do anything, if my life isn't different, if it doesn't show it in any way, then I do I have faith. All right. His language also mirrors the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say false things against you. Rejoice and celebrate. What does James say? Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood that test, the person will see the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He's almost exactly referring to that. I don't think he's referring to Matthew. I think he's referring to the same traditions that Matthew is referring to. These are things that Jesus said, and he's paraphrasing them. And, of course, Jesus' remarks that the Son of Man has to suffer. Okay, something else he says. What comes out of a person is what defiles him, what Jesus says. James says, when one is tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their only evil desire and enticed. Very much in line with what Jesus says. James reflects, so I'm Let's pull some things together. James reflects the majority view of the early Christian church where Christianity remained a Jewish sect and oriented towards the Jewish people. This view is closer to Jesus of Nazareth, the historical person sent primarily to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In Acts 21.20, when they heard this, they praised God, and they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are what? Zealous for the law. James similarly begins his letter, James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, to the Jews, the converted Jews. Matthew, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. James sought a more moderate position and strove to keep Christianity and Judaism united. James was willing to forego the practice of circumcision, the burden of the law for Gentile converts, but he did not want to force, and he did not want for, to force Gentiles to become Jews before they were allowed to become Christians. He merely insisted they maintain a measure of fidelity to the beliefs and practices of the man they claimed to be following. Jesus was a Jew, of course, and this this um, series is very much focused on that he's a Galilean, that he's a Jew, a person of his time in many ways. So, immediate, almost immediately after James was killed, there was an attack, uh, of course, stemming from Galilee against the Romans. And they estimate 100,000 Jews were killed. But what is even more interesting is the refugees from that went into Jerusalem and killed fellow Jews. 
as the Jewish Encyclopedia talks about here. All the more moderate Jewish leaders who headed the Jewish government in the revolt's beginning in 66 were dead by 68. Not one died at the hands of a Roman. All were killed by fellow Jews. And then in 70, the Romans came in, wiped out the whole place. Okay, so basically what happened was the New Testament implies that the leaders of the Jerusalem church, including the 12 apostles James and the elders shared, were representatives of the moderate Hebrew Christianity. Um, and then that would have led most people to, to follow that. If this were the case, the Jerusalem church, then the moderates were the largest group and had the second reason, numerical superiority of claiming to represent the normative position. Okay, so let me skip on. One of the things that I thought was powerful that this guy said is, is not, uh, it's Julius Scott. He says, the larger church quickly turned its back on its Jewish mother. All right, let me finish up. The figure of Jesus ties us to the historical Jesus of Nazareth, not only as his brother, but as connection to Jesus the Jew and Rabbi, who fo- Rabbi, who focused most of his time on earth trying to reach the Jewish people. James was not close to Gentiles entering the church, but sought a middle space between Jew and Gentile from which all believers could build a common community. Paul eventually stopped trying to reach the Jews, on the other hand. The story of James and his epistle connects us to the earliest form of Christianity, a moderate Hebrew Christianity. This form of Christianity disappeared with the destruction of the temple and the death of James. Hellenistic Pauline Christianity emerged as the dominant form. So, this study of the historical Jesus um, focuses on Jesus, a Galilean, a Jew, a person involved in the history of the Jewish people, and understood as the Son of Man, which James also refers to. James paraphrases the words of Jesus far more than any other New Testament writer, focusing on the basics of the kingdom of God, reversal of the social order, focusing on positive use of the law, acting upon the word. And you can see some direct parallels, more than I've even shown. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment, and Jesus says, um, love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. James says, if you keep the royal law of the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, so very much still in line. All right. So James's epistle, I think, are the most substantial link we have to the historical Jesus. Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. All right, thanks.